This is Fundraising Radio. And today is a guest speaker. We have Alex Fedosev, who is the CEO and founder of One World Online, who raised over $26 million. And before we get started, I wanted to make an announcement about One World Online. Specifically, they have just gone public on Republic. I rhymed that by an accident and not intentionally. But the point is that they're offering their shares to Crow through Republic. And they're offering a um, round of $107,000. And I personally have invested $100. I know it's not much, but you can check the link in the description and invest more than I did. So Alex, let's get started by you giving us some background on yourself and on uh, One World Online. Yeah, thank you, Konstantin. And thank you for inviting me to your show. I moved to California back in 1986 and worked for networking companies at the beginning. It was an era of broadband revolution, so great time. And then uh, since 1999, I worked pretty much all this time for startups was uh, regionally broadband area, telecom, smart home, IoT, and started from 2010s, I switched completely to this internet services, kind of combination of media, tech, and new technologies. But um, overall, yeah, my background was academic initially. I was in Moscow State University doing AI projects early days before the hype. And then since I moved to California, yeah, was mostly interested in broadband and the related internet technologies. Got it. So uh, when did you start One World Online? Yeah, so what happened, I had three successful exits in uh, between 2006, 2010, 2011. My companies nice. were quiet. First time after seven years uh, was acquisition of my company called Two Wire, where I was head of product. And then we sold uh, our smart home company after four years of work to Motorola Mobility, which was acquired by Google for the double acquisition. And I was thinking about what to do next, because when you're staying in the same sector for a while, uh, it's interesting and you can make money, but it's not exciting to spend the rest of your life on the same <laughs> topic, right? And right. broadband, IoT is interesting. There's a definitely very exciting segment, but super hard from business model perspective. And you cannot do it for more than a decade. So I was thinking about what is the next big thing, where I should apply my experience and uh, entrepreneurship passion. So, and I was thinking about this a lot, actually, what is the big problem that uh, would be interested to solve? And I came to realization that we consume content every day. So there's tons of information we reading online from various websites, applications, news feeds, and so on, but there's not enough interactivity. In other words, I can consume the information, but I don't see what is the people's opinion about it. What is the actual reaction to this information? What people think about what just happened? And I thought that's might be great actually for people to compare themselves to others on their opinion. It probably should be great for brands to have this feedback mechanism and um, for publishers still to increase engagement. And that's essentially what is one world. We combining engagement tools with advertising solutions. And um, now the last few years, we added some incentive component via blockchain and tokenization. So One World Online is all about interactive experiences and making internet um, interactions better for all three parties involved, the audiences, publishers, and advertisers. Got it. That's pretty interesting. So you said that you had three exits, which is just amazing. Can you uh, give us a little bit like 
comparison between your first experience of starting a company and your current experience of starting a company from the fundraising perspective? Yeah, the first one, I wasn't executive originally. When I joined a company called 2Y in 1999, I was one of the mid-level managers and then grew up to the head of product over years. Mm -hmm. And it took a while. So they promoted me in 2004 to be head of product and essentially launch different accounts. We raised a lot of money. I wasn't in fundraising position, but I was in supporting role all the time by delivering good results, launching new accounts, building the product. Actually, it was hardware. Uh, it was a residential gateway. We became number one in America, number two in the world. AT&T was our biggest customer. So the company raised more than 200 million, but we had very strong CEO and VP of engineering. The folks with the strong backgrounds, the original founders of Polycom, you probably know the top video conferencing solution in the world. And before that, PictureTel. So both Brian Kinman and Pat Romano, um, just super talented uh, folks from MIT that were really good in fundraising, um, along with Brad Kate and my good friend who was head of marketing. Yeah, they did a really good job to raise all this money and then eventually brought the company to exit. Um, but it's a bit different story. Hardware projects usually require a lot of capital. You know, we developed our own oh, basic yeah. chip, right? And then hardware, we built a, a management protocol, which um, became world standard. Together with Alcatel, we brought it to Broadband Forum and turned to what is called now TR69. So it requires a lot of capital to get all this done. Hardware, software, and, and standardization on top of it. So I wouldn't compare a software-only company to that, but definitely I was watching all these activities and participating in due diligences, and uh, yeah, it was exciting. And it was mostly VC money from Silicon Valley, but also a bit from Europe. But the second company, for home, I was very involved, and um, especially I brought Verizon, for example, as a customer, but also as an investor. So the second company called Can we elaborate on that? A little bit more you said you brought verizon as a customer and as an investor how do you how do you manage right. to do this yes here's how it happened in 2006 brett Caton, one of founders of Tuwaya, invited me to his next startup called for home and by the way you know this i have all digits always in my names of companies Tuwaya, for home, <laughs> yeah so i immediately realized okay it starts with the digits so it's the right place for me okay and uh, yeah so brett, brett uh, and team they were at the early stage and we only had uh, one VC from UK called Pond Ventures. They put most of the money in the company and we ran out of money in 2007, which was kind of scary. But what I did in parallel while developing the product, I uh, was talking to all teams at Verizon. Um, network lag, I guess. Can everyone hear me? Yes, yes, I hear you. Oh, okay. I can couldn't hear you. hear you. All right. Can we just like go back like 20 yeah, yeah. seconds? Sure. Yeah, Sorry so when we, I started at For Home, I already had relationship with most of telcos around the world, from AT&T to British Telecom to Telstra in Australia. And of course, um, when you go from generic broadband solution to something very specific, like smart home, I was thinking, okay, who is the best fit to bring this idea and uh, develop something together and Verizon was number one on my list because I knew these people very well, the product team. And I knew that they have this high interest for additional services that can be offered on top of their broadband connection. Especially if you remember there was a Fios, the new fiber based uh, offering coming from Verizon and they actually were looking for additional apps. And so 
Understood. That's that's interesting. So you had some uh, you had some connections with them. By the way, uh, just a recent tool that I've discovered for those who want to get in touch with big companies like Verizon, Google, or something like that. There is a tool called Hunters.io, which allows you to connect to executives at those big companies. Um, I have not tried it personally, but might be helpful for some of you who are not as experienced as Alex and who don't have as many friends. <laughs> so oh, yeah. uh, let's move on then. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your uh, current company, One World Online. On Crunchbase, it says that you're on uh, ICO funding right now. Can you tell a bit about that? Well, ICO was in the middle of our life cycle. We had some equity fundraising before ICO and after. But of course, you remember 2017, but it became a super popular way to raise additional right. capital. But for us, it, interesting enough, it wasn't just about the capital. I really like the idea of incentives that can be run on cryptocurrency versus virtual points, because unlike many other companies, Monmouth already had a system based on virtual points. We actually built it from day one. Since 2013, we already had all of our users incentivized with the virtual points and earning it through engagement, like voting, sharing, creating content. But they were just badges, right? Which didn't have any material backup. And the idea of cryptocurrency was so right on. My friend from Crypto Valley, actually, who was a VP of innovation back then, he came to California in mid-2016 and really asked me to create a media solution around blockchain. So we got into this very early. And when time came for ICO, which was mid-2017, we issued our token to essentially supplement the system that already was in place. So mm -hmm. people can redeem their virtual points into tokens, which are trading on exchanges and can be used back in our application. So it's a classic utility token with a real uh, asset behind it. And the asset is the advertising capabilities of one world platform. So you can exchange one token for one CPM, which means 1,000 ad impressions. And we did this ICO quite successfully, but also it wasn't just classical ICO when you raised Ethereum and Bitcoin. We allowed uh, partner token swaps, which was a know-how that we pretty much invented, uh, cross-investment with our partners that are also part of the ecosystem and issuing their own tokens. So a big part of our proceeds came from these token swaps, and it worked mm -hmm. beautifully because next year, a couple of these companies became very successful, so the assets grew up in value before the crypto winter came up. Uh, but more importantly, we were cross-invested with this partner, so there's a definitely good grounds for cooperation. And that's how we raised this. Yeah, over 10 million total if, in proceeds. Most of them were crypto. That's that's great, actually. I, I love this. Uh, because of the partnership that's created by Swap Tokens. My next question would be, uh, how much in total did you raise through ICO? So you said that there was a lot of uh, token swaps, etc. Yeah. And uh, how much? 10.8 million. Nice. And how much of that? You've then mentioned that there was a, a crypto winter when many of the companies died uh, that were operating in blockchain. How much money did you have after that crypto winter? Because many of this uh, money that you raised were in uh, tokens, right? Right. I would say that out of 8 million of swaps that we've done, roughly out of this amount, Two companies survived and did quite well, especially early 2018, but even second half, it was still staying strong, specifically Universa and Sophia TX. There are two infrastructure plays, one Eastern European, one Swiss company. And the other 
six, they pretty much died. Yeah, either they didn't materialize or the token went down almost to zero. But oh, it's pretty much my observation is that it's pretty much like startup scene when you have only two, maybe one out of ten surviving, but making it really well and kind of compensating for the rest. That's the same model. Right. Yeah, that works. That's totally understandable. And how much do you spend on this ICO campaign? So ICO for me, it's pretty much similar to a crowdfunding campaign, right? So you have to launch multiple uh, ads, etc. cetera. Uh, how much do you spend on that process? I would say that actually most of the proceeds came from our institutional and accredited investors in our ecosystem, because I did try some social media tools and probably because it was second part of 2017, it didn't work well. Uh, like we got nothing from Facebook or some other traditional tools, Google AdWords. Yeah, so most of it was done through our network of investors and people who already knew the company and appreciated our business. We did actually some test campaigns in the US and India, but mostly to develop our own tools around it, which we mm -hmm. then successfully deployed for other companies. And uh, as you know, One World itself is advertising solution. So right. that's the part that worked actually. And uh, for example, one of our big investors since the early days is Times Group of India. It's the biggest media holding on the planet. And they're very innovative folks. They have a US office in Silicon Valley, the investment arm. And we did a few really successful campaigns, both digital and print, to raise awareness of One World. I consider this was a success. Yeah, we, we spent over a million dollars on promotions and advertising if you count everything, right? Oh. The contractors, the media placement and so on. But it justified itself, as you can tell. But mostly with direct deals and most mostly accredited investors. Understood. Which are, by the way, they, 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 in this case, they weren't investors, really. They were more like uh, people buying tokens and token holders, right? Because clearly it's not an investment. It's a purchase an asset that have a real utility use, access to advertising platform. And everybody needs uh, access to advertising, clearly, right? Companies. Right organizations, everybody needs to retain something, their products, their offerings. So in our case, it was more like exception because we had real value and uh, that helped a lot. Right. Yeah, that that's really simple. Uh, and uh, another question that I would really wanted to ask you is this. Uh, I saw on your uh, Crunchbase profile that you have acquired a smaller company called Flipter. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about this acquisition? Yeah. So what's interesting, one world idea is not necessarily unique because many people around the world, they understand the importance of interactivity, feedback collection from people to supplement content with the, these nice tools. And Flipter is a good example. That was a small company out of Mexico. Yeah, so it's a classical example when somebody developed a similar solution, interactive tools to supplement content, but in a specific region. Like in this case, it was uh, Mexico, Chile. These guys were working mostly in Latin America. And we met with the founder and he was in a very challenging situation from cash flow perspective. So everything worked out well. So we added him and his team to One World and they essentially became our regional extension, covering everything in Spanish language, Latin America and some other parts of the world. Yeah, that's something we have done in my previous life also, acquiring companies that are supplemental to our business. Even back at Dwyer, we acquired a company and uh, yeah, it's a fun experience yeah when you work with talented folks and you give them a chance to become part of a bigger story that's great uh so i often hear 
how people say um, build a startup where the money is and some people take it very very literally and they try to aim for an acquisition from day one so do you think that's a reasonable strategy i can tell you a story from our own experience sure uh, i'm not against the early, early exits it's a good thing right if uh, if you're lucky if stars align why not right but of course realistically it's very very rare situation when this acquisition might happen but uh, when one road was only two weeks young back in fall of 2012 we were in downtown san jose and participated in the global mobile conference right there in downtown san jose and it was a time when the Marissa mayor was a CEO of Yahoo and they were actively doing um, higher acquisition, right? Equity hires. So essentially buying companies just to get more people into Yahoo. Mm -hmm. And mobile was a big focus for them. So we were at the booth with just two weeks into business, showing our first prototype. And the guy who actually was doing acquisitions for Marissa Mayer stopped by. We had a very good conversation. He didn't tell us that he's doing acquisitions. And only on the second call, it was revealed. And I was literally facing the situation, selling the company two weeks into operations. Oh, God. And of course, we didn't, yeah, we didn't do it. And well, I don't think it will be like as determined. It might have happened, but, you know, I was more interested to build our solution than become part of Yahoo, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, that was a good call. Mm -hmm. The more I talk to founders from San Francisco, the more it reminds me of this show, Silicon Valley. Just <laughs> so many similarities. Oh. I can tell you, some parts of my, our lives are actually more, like, much more funny and um, much worse on like, you know, that <laughs> side than what you see in this movie. People think it's grotesque, but it's not, right? By no means. It just, you know, stylistically, it uh, could be improved. But overall, they tell the truth about the life here. But there's certain things that wouldn't, you wouldn't see even in this type of shows because they're so bad that they don't want to talk about publicly what, what happens to people. Like, I don't really want to mention it, but since you touched it, like, I know two of the founders of companies that I was working with, they died. Uh, one was heart attack, another suicide, and he, it's not for everybody. Look, startup life, yeah, people see the fun part of it, that, yeah, shows, you know, hackathons, a lot of engagements, great companies, talking to Google, talking to Verizon, like you just mentioned. We have all of that, of course, no, no question. But it's all good when all good, but when things are going bad or ugly, not everybody can stand it and it's breaking people's lives. And uh, I was really always advocating for entrepreneurship and I'm, I'm advising so many startups here, but now I'm trying to be cautious about this and saying, guys, if you really want to be entrepreneurs and found your own startup, you really need to be sure that you're ready for the bad times too, not just good times. You have to realize it upfront and it's imminent. There's no way you can avoid it. You're absolutely going to hit really, really bad times. Every startup does. Are you ready for that? Because Silicon Valley show is kind of, one way to see it a little bit more, but the real life is. We've got another network lag here. And while Alex is restoring his connection, I just want to say that, yeah, this is true. This is preset, but true perspective on what startup life is like. And from my own perspective, uh, the more I talk to great founders of startups, uh, the more I see this pattern of them working over 12 hours a day. So if I talk to someone who has a great company, the chances are extremely high that they're working over 12 hours and they're just like, oh, it's fine. I, I really got used to this. So yeah, uh, Alex, you're back. Uh, thanks for this dark yeah. but realistic perspective. I really love when people touch on the darker side of the startup world because some people tend to view it in like, Pain glasses, I guess. 
um, and uh, just are not not ready for the real life. So let's move yes. on to probably something uh, more positive. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, talk about your um, first round. So. Uh, before you you yes. started One World Online, you said you had three exits. I believe you had uh, over yes. a decade, uh, many mm -hmm. decades of experience. And uh, what's the first step here for you when you were like, "All right, it's time for me to fundraise." What do you do first when you have so many connections? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. I had a lot of connections, all the Silicon Valley um, people and both entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And yeah, that was a fun part because uh, I actually a huge fan of Guy Kawasaki and his uh, philosophy of how a startup should be created. There's a book called Art of the Start. I literally followed it. Like everything that you can read in this book, I did it. And I talked to Guy a couple of times after that and really thanked him for being such an influence and inspiration. Because when I was still inside of Motorola and then Google uh, and the big corporations, it's definitely not fun and uh, they pretty much degradation, right? If you end up in a big corporation, you're going to be degrading professionally and emotionally. And uh, smart people don't stay in big corporations for a long time. So my whole team that was acquired, we started thinking about what to do next. And of course, yeah, fundraising came up um, quickly, right? Because we had an idea, we started working on it, prototyping while we're still employed there, exactly how Guy Kawasaki suggested we should do it. Uh, because you develop your new idea when you're still in a previous company. And uh, we started with friends and family. And it was also a good coincidence. One of my good friends, actually, a head of a huge software firm that developing legal software. Um, you know their name, but I uh, just don't want to mention it here. It's very popular in Eastern Europe. He was mm -hmm. visiting California, and um, I was telling him and his kids about what I'm doing next in my career. And he got extremely interested and said, oh, can I invest in you? And I wasn't really in fundraising mode at this moment, but when somebody is telling you, would you take my money? And uh, I'm a responsible person, so I really want to make sure that I will deliver back on this investment. Uh, and we met second time and I put together a presentation explaining yeah, our strategy. And then, yeah, we made the first deal even before I officially started fundraising, which was about 200K. And obviously at the early stage, that's a good amount of money because my team was going just on stock options for the first 18 months. We decided not to pay ourselves any cash compensation and just have a stock for work type of model, which was another know-how which worked beautifully. So in 18 months, we created prototype and we we're ready to go and start the operations. And we had 200K in the bank. And after that um, was the late 2012 when I went after friends and family. And I was lucky second time because many of them actually waited for me to start my own company. You know, in Silicon Valley, everybody knows everything about others, right? And they yeah. knew I had uh, some really good exits and became pretty like high ranked uh, in conversion division of Motorola. So when I said I'm starting my own company, people brought the first um, half a million. And by late 2013, raised 1.5 million. That was our first round. I bet my listeners are super duper extra jealous right now because like rating like 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 that, one point five million on the first round. That's that's really impressive. So uh, let's move back a little bit to people who have OS connections, and what would be your advice for people who are just starting their company, uh, but have couple but not not much connections with money? What would be your advice? 
well, first of all, I'm very, very much for pro-entrepreneurship and advise many companies and help them to raise money in all different shapes and forms. Um, yeah, you don't need that much amount, actually. Remember, for this first 18 months, we were going no money, just developing it well employed by our current companies. And we put uh, about 50K ourselves, the, the founding team. So this amount actually will keep you alive for some time if you keep developing based on your previous proceeds or some, you know, savings. There are many different ways how we can start it. But even with a five-digit capital, you can get pretty far by just developing prototype and have something to show. I have many companies in my ecosystem. Some are very early stage, like studio style, when they have an idea, a couple of founders, very little cash. I think there are different strategies and we can go through them quickly, depending on what you're doing, right? What is your application or your product? If it's hardware or software, it's completely different. Let's do uh, software, software as it's okay, more yeah. common. Then the next big split is B2B versus B2C, right? Absolutely different strategies. B2B much easier because there are many boutique um, studios and like early stage funds that love the idea of small investment in exchange for big percentage of the company. I'm part of one of these uh, boutiques actually called Hive in Palo Alto. They're doing just that and I always help them with the good companies and resources. And yeah, even on a small amount of money, you can get funded for six months or maybe more just to develop your first demo. And then they usually bring strategic uh, partner or strategic investor. Uh, I love this model. I think it's very smart because you know who you're going to sell to right after your product is ready for, for the market. It's exactly what I did with AT&T and Verizon. When you bring your potential customer early as a strategic investor and you already have a clear path about what you're going to do about them. The second option, of course, if you don't go after a specific uh, customer or market and you just develop an internal application that you can monetize later, but you know how to make it viral and get it going. I'll give you one example. The company I just talked to, they developed uh, banking for teenagers. That's a big lack on the market. So it doesn't matter who is your strategic partner. It's a, a very no, well-known pain point. And if somebody's going to address it, there's a very good chance for, of success, even without strategics. You can just start on your own, right, and build momentum through smart advertising and uh, introductions and so on. There are other ways to yeah, raise money quickly. Uh, for example, just get a um, connection to right people in the investment world. And it's changing rapidly, as you know, right? So VCs are not as important as it used to be. I really like angel groups because they're much more flexible. And if you present in front of them, you usually have a higher chance to get somebody who's interested. Like I'll give mm -hmm. you also example from one world story. At the early stage, when I presented to Kiretsu Forum, which is one of the biggest investment angel communities in America, um, maybe my story wasn't mature enough and maybe I didn't deliver it well. So like 100 people in the room, uh, they didn't really express interest right away. It's like 99 out of 100 maybe didn't fully understand what I'm doing because they're more traditional, old school investors. And I was a bit disappointed and driving back to the office and, and I got a call. And it was the one guy, just one person inside of this whole group that called me and said, you know what, there's something interesting what, what you're telling. Can we meet for lunch with me and my son? And I met him and it turned out to be Matthew Merle, the author of Fifth Era, bestseller on Amazon, one of the most prominent and most successful angel investors in Bay Area. He lives in San Francisco. He has a long story of successful exits. Amazing person. And he became an investor. So I get one out of 100 
success in this angel community, but it was the best one. So that's not yeah. a strategy. If you, yeah, go to angels and yeah, try to go white. Actually, don't be shy. Kind of register for these forums. We have plenty of them in Silicon Valley. There are many in New York, many in Northwest, Seattle area. If people want to build this connection, you have to go, you have to tell your story. And soon later, somebody will get interested. And finally, to complete the list of potential obvious strategies for early stage, I think uh, uh, what used to be ICO, but now it's the IO, STO, just token issues, it's still a great model. I absolutely believe in it. And I think that it might be even a good thing that the first wave already passed and uh, we learned the lesson, right? Now, companies doing tokenization are usually folks that have a product, solid team. Uh, there's no much fraud going on. I think the quality of companies is much higher and issuing tokens and selling the, as a security token, let's say your shares or some ABT asset back tokens or utility tokens with a pre-sale. Uh, it's absolutely a viable option, but they need to have a real application for that. So many options to choose from. That's true. And let's move a little bit backwards to the very beginning of this of your response. You said that you were working 18 months with no pay for one world, right? But mm -hmm. then you said that you were working for uh, a, a bigger corporation for, uh, that was paying you a salary, right? Yeah. So okay. the compensation with the stock and stock options is very typical for startups. So. Uh, Absolutely, and believe that that should be a way to go at the early stage. But you were, you were part-time, right? Options. Yes, correct. Everybody was part-time. And then after we finished this 18 months, the three of us, the first three, we quit Motorola and uh, went on like full-time to one road. So it was a multi-stage process. Understood. So uh, you've said multiple times that big corporations are basically degrading people. And I totally agree on that. Big corporations are horrible, uh, even though I've never worked in them. <laughs> hmm. But uh, would you recommend young founders who are just thinking to start their journey in a startup world, but don't really have any like intra pass or uh, money or anything like that? Would you recommend them to go into larger corporations or rather into small startups? No, I would never, I, I would definitely recommend them to avoid big corporations by all the means, unless they need legal status, like get to work visa and then convert to like green card or something like this, then it's justifiable. It's okay to, to go the, down this path, but it's not really needed. Most of entrepreneurs can get all visa nowadays. And I absolutely recommend only go to startups. If you need to get connections to big corporations, there are other ways to do it, right? You don't want to be deployed by them. You don't want to lose the precious years of your life, like doing nonsense inside sure. of like Google and Facebook and such, which, you know, there's no value there. Uh, but when you're in startup, you're doing real work, you like really have your options open, right? You're involved in everything from product to business, to build the partnerships. You become a really valuable human, not just the uh, professional, right? Because you have to interact with right. so many people. It's enjoyable life. I mean, that's a full life which is definitely motivating. But to get to big corporations, uh, a couple of ways to do it. You can join some incubator, which already has connections to big brands. It could be plug and play in Sunnyvale or Launchpad, the Google program, I'm mentor at both. So I'm very involved in these both programs. Still mentioned for Google and for plug and play. And that's how we can meet all the brands in the world you wish, through these events, mentoring sessions and so on. Without being an employee of this corporate, you can just meet the right people and talk about your very solution, not work for them on their solutions, 
but offer your solution and get them involved in one or another capacity. Investor would be ideal, but even like a customer for your product or just some strategic partnership. The only thing I really w- want to warn people, um, I came from telecom world, right? And there are three rules of engagements there are patience, patience, and patience. Like if you want to kill an <laughs> elephant, you have to hunt for it for a long time. Verizon took me two years to go from first uh, discussion to actually get a paid contract with money. We're doing integrations, demos. I was standing at Verizon booth at CES in Las Vegas and so on. You have to go through a lot of activities and a lot of uh, development and business support before you get there. So that's something. First conversation, second conversation means nothing. People should be prepared for long journey with a lot of challenges. But if they're really dedicated and determined, then absolutely materialize. So big corporations are much more accessible now than 10 years ago, especially 20 years ago. So it's all possible. That's true. And this is a really positive note to wrap our our podcast on. Um, is there anything, uh, one advice you would give to people who are listening to this right now? And we will wrap it up. I still want to encourage people to be entrepreneurs, but be careful when they enter this path because they should be prepared. And um, there's still huge opportunities out there. I really believe in Web 3.0. I think uh, decentralization and uh, the whole new internet or new principles is so big that very few people understand the real scale of it. It's complete change, not just faster and bigger and better, but also changing relationships between people, governments and corporations. I really encourage people to go down this path because there will be tremendous opportunities. We'll see new Google, new Facebook, new Amazon, new everybody in this space in the next decade. And that's where um, time of opportunities really encourage people to go there. That's even more positive note to finish our podcast on. All right. Thanks a lot, Alex, for coming up today, for sharing your experience, for telling us your journey and have a great weekend. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Constantine. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye. You really thought it's the end of the episode? Nope, not yet. In these uncertain times, when a weird virus is spinning out of control and investors are trying to figure out where to put their money and not to lose it all, I have an answer. Invest in human capital. I will be among the first 10 people to participate in something called human IPO. So shortly about how it works. You can buy futures on my time now when it costs just $100 per hour. And when I become Mark Zuckerberg 2.0 and my time is worth $1,000 per hour, you can sell it or redeem it, either making 10x return or bringing me to your firm as an advisor or speaker for a few hours. My offering is not live yet, so now you can only subscribe to my updates. But please do so and become the first one to buy my time when my offering goes live. To sum it up, in dark days, buy time, not toilet paper, and your money won't be flushed into the toilet. I'll leave a link to my profile on Human IPO in the description of this episode, and thanks again for listening to Fundraising Radio.